Federal agencies like to compete with each other on the annual Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, and it's no different inside the National Institutes of Health. The National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases ranked the highest of all NIH institutes on last year's Viewpoint Survey. It created a tool several years ago to help leaders identify bright spots and pain points with employee feedback. Camille Hoover is NIDDK's executive officer, and Dr. Griffin Rogers is the Institute's director. They tell Federal News Network's Nicole Agrisco what was behind their success on the survey again this past year. At NIDDK, our focus has always been on making sure our staff know that their voices matter and that we listen to and, and use what they say to create a more meaningful change. During the pandemic, obviously, we we knew that we had to find ways to keep those lines of communication open so that despite not being together in person, our staff still felt connected, informed, and engaged. And among the several examples, we increased our email updates from leadership and, and held several virtual town halls for all of our staff in which we shared news about what we knew about COVID-19 and and what to expect moving forward. We provided resources to help people cope with the new normal and, and address questions submitted by staff. And again, we believe that, that these efforts paid off. As you alluded to, nearly 75% of NIDDK staff completed the 2020 FEV survey. It's really a new record for NIDDK, and it's, I think, an indication that people understand that their feedback really makes a a real difference. We also scored number one across NIH, I'm proud to say, on measures of employment engagement and global satisfaction. Now, our staff have to work in the system, but it's incumbent upon leaders to work on the system. And I think that knowing what to pinpoint to improve can largely be credited by software tool that Camille's uh, office developed a few years ago that she spoke to you about called EVS Art. It enabled us to conduct quick and in-depth analysis of our FEVS results, leading to a process of continuous improvement at NIDDK. And let me turn to Camille to say a few words about that. So the EVS Art tool is actually the Employee Viewpoint Survey Analysis and Results tool. And we have made it shorter with EVS Art. And the Federal Viewpoint Survey provides a treasure trove of information about what our staff believe and what they think and what their perspective is. And so this EVS art tool really helps us sift through the enormous amount of data that's coming in. And it allows us to do deeper dives and really see and hear the voice of the people and understand where we're doing well and where we can improve. And we have a motto all year long, and it drives from the FEVS data, which is you speak, we listen, things happen. And it's been such a remarkable tool. Uh, Nicole knows we've been gifting it across government to all the other federal agencies. So we've also, just all mentioned, we also work directly with OPM to create and launch a supplemental survey to capture the voice of those who do not normally get asked to participate in the traditional survey. And that includes our large population of trainees and fellows, our pathway students and others. So we launched that in 2020, and now we've been able to incorporate an even larger portion of our workforce in understanding their perspectives on where we're doing well and where we can improve. Now, did you have to change the tool again in 2020 to account for the new COVID 
related questions, and I think the survey was shorter as well this year. Did it change? Absolutely. It changed in remarkable ways because it only has 38 of the initial 71 questions. So we had to completely rework the tool. And then we had to add in all of the extra dimensions that are necessary to be able to grasp the the telework questions as well. And we have already posted that on the max.gov site, and we've been sharing it broadly across government. I guess speaking specifically about the the results themselves, you know, based on this journey that you've been on, you know, for recent years to improve engagement and to listen to employee feedback, was there something about perhaps previous years results or scores that you really wanted to try to act on in 2020? Anything specific that stood out to you as a a goal perhaps for this last year or anything like that? So, I mean, as Dr. Rogers has touched on, I mean, we know the voice of the people is just paramount into everything that we do. And we can have aspirations and lofty goals, but they must be able to operationalize on the front lines where our staff are doing the work. And so we had to really think about what we were going to do and how we would capture their voice differently this year since we've been virtual. And with all of the other things that have been going on and that our our staff have been facing over the last year and a half. And so we really capitalized on doing, as he said, town halls, all hands meetings. We use different surveys and different platforms so that we could constantly be collecting the voice of the people. And one of the things we did is over the last year, we have held facilitated listening circles on sensitive but crucial topics. And some of those listening circles have been about race and the social unrest that's going on around us women in science and the harassment and institutional discrimination they often experience, the violence that the Asian, Asian American and Pacific Islander community has been facing. And so over the course of these listening sessions, we were able to bring the community together and to be able to share experiences, learn from each other, and just have authentic conversations about these things that are so important to the people of the organization. Then we also had We've been having town hall meetings, and we specifically had an institute-wide town hall on health disparities, racism, and equity. And then what we did, which was novel, is we held a post-town hall discussion to talk more in-depth with attendees about their experiences with and perceptions about racism and what they felt would make NIDDK a more equitable and inclusive place to work. And we took away many lessons from that, which will guide the future discussions on these topics, And this forum actually allowed us to begin practicing talking about race, which is something that doesn't normally happen in the workplace. So those are just some of the ways we have pivoted. Yeah, so that's, a, I think, a good segue to get to the other component that I was interested in talking to you all about. Camille, you mentioned these town hall discussions and then forums for employees to talk about race, ethnicity, and, you know, some of the events that happened in the last year or so. From your perspective as leaders, what were those experiences like? I mean, what did you hear from employees and how did that guide your your steps moving forward? So, you know, across NIDDK, we have seen a sincere desire to create and nurture a civil, diverse, inclusive, and equitable workplace for all. We want people to feel that it's safe, that they're valued, and that there's an opportunity to thrive. And how one employee is going to thrive may be different than others. We have to broaden our lens to truly understand 
all the different ways we need to be engaged and all the different ways we need to work on our culture so that it is one where everyone can flourish. So one of the things we did that came out of the Voice of the People is we decided to set a goal and create an NIDDK Civility, Diversity and Inclusion Steering Committee. And I know that many places are putting together steering committees. Ours is quite unique in that it has diverse members of our community from across the entire institutes. We have trainees, we have fellows, we have tenure track scientists, admin, we have senior leaders, we have very junior leaders, so that we can try our best to capture the perspective and the voice of everyone. And this committee will provide overarching guidance on issues, initiatives, and the day-to-day -day operations related to the topics that are coming up, and also to inform our Institute's anti-harassment plan, which we created a couple of years ago, and the plan that we are developing now, which will become our race equity plan and all the related activities. So we've already, based on what the people of the organization have said they're interested in, we've already launched four working groups comprised of staff, large amount of staff from across the Institute to implement initiatives in various areas. So for instance, we are developing a training curriculum and seminar series on topics related to civility, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this is gonna be foundational for all the initiatives moving forward. We all need to be talking of a same set of definitions and have a same common understanding as a start point. And then we have many initiatives and people are passionate about it. They are raising their voice wanting to help. We're going to be developing a buddy system for employees. We're developing strategies to increase workplace safety and inclusivity for members of the LGBTQ community, just to name a few. Dr. Rogers, is there anything else that you wanted to add to that? Perhaps your perspective and hearing your employees talk about some of these issues and, and what you learned from them? One of the things that we've heard, of course, is that not only in NIDDK, but across all of NIH, ethnic and racial minority groups are substantially underrepresented in senior leadership positions. And of course, it often is the case that it's not what, what sort of people are, are thinking about, it's what they're thinking. And oftentimes people don't see representation in leadership positions. They assume that that's not something that's very important to the organization in general. And so we're, we're trying to join a NIH effort, wide effort to address barriers and implement changes, both at NIH and the broader scientific community that would improve the representation at senior leadership levels. Among these efforts, we'll be focusing on retaining and recruiting talented people from underrepresented groups, including minorities and women and people with disabilities, for example. In fact, right now, we're searching to fill a position, a senior leadership position, our NIDDK clinical director. And I personally charge the search committee with ensuring that we identify and reach out to the diverse candidates through a national recruitment effort. This also means keeping our minds open as we consider, you know, who will be a best fit in this role for the Institute. And as much as possible, staying away from our own implicit biases in the hiring process. Right. And, you know, to just say that increasing our lens and how we think about recruiting and how we think about bringing in applicants for these senior level positions. One thing that we have done is now part of the application process, the job announcement 
calls for a one-page diversity statement that'll outline the candidate's professional skills, experience, and willingness to engage in activities that would foster diversity and equity in the workplace. And what we've done in this advertisement is actually a best practice that NIH is thinking of incorporating more broadly. We made sure the search committee had implicit bias training, NIDDK reached out to the Scientific Workforce Diversity Office, and they are assisting in identifying a diverse pool of candidates as well. And, you know, because our commitment to building the pipeline of diverse talents is so important to us, we have been collaborating with Lisa Lewis, the Chief Operating Officer of the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology and other HHH agencies to conduct outreach to minority-serving institutions to equip students with the knowledge and skills needed to be viable candidates in the pursuit of careers in public service. And our primary focus of the initiative is to communicate information on the federal government's pathways program, the federal hiring process, and career paths within the Department of Health and Human Services with the targeted goal of increasing the number of minority students in the federal applicant pool. And we do navigating federal employment workshops, and we have been attending college and university internships and career fairs in person before COVID and now virtually. And over the last two years, we've reached over 2,200 students and recent grads at over 230 colleges and universities. So we're really proud of it. We're about to launch our third year of the program with a navigation workshop in August and our first virtual fair of the academic year in September. Camille, you mentioned setting a a goal of, of recruiting more minorities to positions at NIDDK and throughout NIH, do you all set specific targets at all? Are there numeric goals associated with that? Just trying to get a better sense of what that means for you all when you talk about setting those kinds of goals and if there are numbers tied to them or not. Right. There are not numbers or targets that are tied to them, but what we do on a regular basis is we do look at the demographics and the diversity of our workforce. And then what we are trying to improve and increase is pulling in a more diverse applicant pool so that we make sure we are touching a much broader population and communities of people to be considered for these jobs. So when we go to minority serving institutions, we're helping them to understand how you navigate that hiring system. I mean, it can really be very bureaucratic when you're trying to become a federal employee. And so we handhold, we give advice and counseling. We're meeting separately with helping people to understand what it really takes and how you need to navigate. And then I think at the senior levels and at all levels, we're just trying to make sure that we have a broader lens and how we think about and how we consider who are the applicants that we want to bring in. Because the more diverse pool, then the better opportunities we have to really consider broad, diverse candidates. Nicole, I would just add that, you know, sometimes we may not have current positions that we're looking for, but this information that Camille and her group are sharing with individuals creates a knowledge base and an understanding that there are other government facilities that they may apply to. And and having someone, you know, with that level of interest kind of show them kind of the path forward has improved numbers, I'm sure, you know, indirectly at other institutions. So we, we kind of feel that we're doing this, you know, on a much broader level. You know, and to add to that, one other thing I would say is when we even look at our own internal workforce, 
you have some people that have kind of capped out or they're in a position and they've been in it for many years and they're really not sure how to improve or increase or develop their careers. And so we also have introduced many programs to help our staff be able to continue to foster their career development. One program in particular, and we are on our third cohort now, is we have created an NIDDK mentor program. So we're huge believers in the need that everyone has to have mentors in their life. And at NIDDK, we took it a step farther and we created a one-year program to assist participants, which are mentees, in creating a partnership with more experienced mentors who can provide one-on-one career guidance and share valuable aspects of their own accumulated knowledge and wisdom in support of the mentee's personal and professional development. And we've already seen this pay off because as they start to gain more skills and ability and think differently, they are able to position themselves to be successful in moving and climbing up the ladder and applying for different jobs. So, you know, what I believe is that all staff can benefit from a mentor, but most of your staff on the front lines you know, they don't know how to go about finding a mentor. Who would be willing to take them on as a mentor? Will my supervisor allow me time each month to meet with a mentor? So our program provides a framework for staff to be able to create a successful mentor relationship. We help them understand what a successful relationship looks like, set expectations, and then we provide a launching pad for them to go out and reach out to potential mentees. And then once the mentees have matched with a mentor, We bring them all together to set the stage for their year-long engagement. And then along the way, we are fostering the mentees and making sure they're developing. And we've already seen this pay off where it is helping them grow and develop in their career. And that's a really important investment. And it's a win-win for the staff. And it's a win-win for us as an organization. One thing that I'm, I'm hearing a lot about lately, and I think a lot of it is tied to you know, the administration's priorities with diversity and inclusion, the new executive order that came out recently, is um, a greater demand for more data and more specific data about the makeup of the federal workforce, perhaps your workforce, who's staying, who's there, how perhaps, you know, different demographics might intersect with one another and how that might inform your experience as a federal employee. Is that something that you all are looking at? And if so, how is that going for you? We are pouring over data, Nicole, to try to see, are there things that we were only looking through one lens? And if we slightly change the lens or if we overlay demographics on the data, is it going to tell us a different story? And we are right in the midst of a discovery of this at NIDDK and across NIH as well. And one thing in particular that NIDDK is taking the lead on We're circling back to the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. So there are demographics related to the FEBS, right? They come in three different demographics that you could assign, which is Black, African-American, white, or other. And in general, I don't think that across government, people have overlaid that on the results. And so my team is hard at work. We have just gotten the demographics from HHS and OPM in the last month, and we are creating a tool for all of NIH to use where we can now overlay the demographics on all the answers to see if there are different perspectives from different communities. And then we can add in like education, we can add in supervisory status, and we can really drill down deeper to understand what the different communities of our workforce are saying 
And are there different voices from different communities? And that's something that we've just never done before. So that's a perfect example of something we will be doing moving forward. What else is next for you all that maybe we haven't gotten to at this point? Is there something you know specific with your engagement efforts, ways that you would like to build on the success from 2020, any new initiatives that we haven't talked about yet that we might be missing? Well, so what I will say, I mean, we continue to really be doing very well in the engagement front and global satisfaction. But we do know across NIDDK, we need to do more. And we want to make sure that the pillars of civility, diversity, equity, and inclusion are inculcated and interwoven into the framework of all our programs. And that will have to evolve. And that is going to be the focus that we have from this point on. We're in a moment of time that we have an opportunity to change and do things differently. And that's a wonderful opportunity. We know our staff are resilient. We know they've shown amazing flexibility, and we want to just continue to do everything we can to create an environment and a culture where all of our staff can flourish. Camille Hoover, Executive Officer at the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases at NIH, and Dr. Griffin Rogers, NIDDK's Executive Director, speaking there with Federal News Network's Nicole Agrisco. You can hear an extended version of their discussion at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Still ahead on Federal News Network, once again, an agency cites the federal acquisition regulation but doesn't follow it. That's next on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Radio part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, in for Tom. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, 
it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day and I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you use to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, 
folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. As we continue to face COVID-19, we're now facing flu season. Influenza has the potential to infect millions, putting lives and the healthcare system at risk. Now more than ever, it's essential to protect yourself from influenza by getting the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is safe and effective and can't give you the flu. To protect yourself and those at highest risk, get your flu vaccine. Learn more at michigan.gov flu. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.